This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. As you heard in Bob's news, restrictions are being lifted gradually. And for restaurants and gyms, that means they will be allowed to reopen at 50% capacity on January 31st. So we begin with some business people who have been waiting for reopening. Is this what they're hoping for? Or is it another incremental and uncertain step that prevents that presents as many problems as it solves. And what about you? Are you ready to return to your favorite restaurant or the gym? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Larry Isaacs, president of the Firkin Group of Pubs, and Perry Tuccioroni, board of directors, member of the Fitness Industry Council and part of its Ontario leadership team. Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Let us begin with Larry. So what does this announcement mean for you? Uh, Libby, I think we're very cautiously optimistic at this point in time. We've seen the openings and closings happening four times now during the pandemic. We've been closed for 440 days by the end of January over the past 22 months. Uh, We've lost a number of staff over that time, a lot of products in and out and throwing things away as we open and close. So as I say, cautiously optimistic, and as we see the path forward, excited to head out of the winter and hopefully get back to what we call normal, which we don't know what that is, uh, very soon. And uh, opening at 50%, that can work for you? Look, at the end of the day, we'll take what we can get at this point in time. As, as I've explained, and we've chatted about this before, our business operates on a very, very small margin. We make 5% profit at 100% occupancy. So 50% is not going to get us there, but it's a start. It gets our employees back uh, on the payroll. We get also some help of the subsidies, which are very, very needed, but not helpful on the, on the wage subsidy. When we closed, we can't use it. So we're excited about getting our employees back, and hopefully they'll all be back. We've just laid them off, you know, recently. So it's not, a, it's not an ideal situation, but as I said, we'll take whatever we can get at this point in time. Perry, what about you? What's the situation in gyms? Well, the gyms are the same situation as the restaurants. Um, so we have that same take as cautious optimistic. Uh, with, you know, the mandated shutdown, the fourth one, like on Ontario has been hit the hardest and has the most, has the longest shutdown days than any jurisdiction in North America. And we've been hit very, very hard. The fitness industry a little bit harder because we don't even have the option of, of takeout. You know, it's just, you have to come to the facility. So we're, you know, 50% it's a start. And but, we're, uh, sorry, we're but a, a lot of people have moved to uh, online classes. Well, the online classes, uh, it's a small percentage. And like, and what's going to happen? What's happened? A lot of people have moved to online classes, but with the online, this happened, gosh, I think it was probably like 15 years ago when the big home gym sales were kicked up. You don't get the same experience at home uh, that you do in a club. Some people stick with online, but people want to get back to the gyms because they want that interaction, the better equipment, the most, the environment that goes with it. The gyms are offering, uh, some of them were offering, uh, virtual classes. But it really didn't do very well for most of the gyms. It didn't help. It didn't help to really offset the closures. That's the unfortunate part. Um, so that's a big component. You're right. There was some virtual exhaustion. But the other part of it is being closed and with virtual options, it's opened up a whole new market for the future, which doesn't help today, that get more people active. We'll get people, hopefully, more people back in the gym. We'll lose some, but we'll make up for that for other people who want to really take their fitness and their program to the next level. What about staffing in your industry? Have people gone on to other types of jobs? Very difficult. We're experiencing the same challenges as all the other small businesses as well. 
um, a lot of personal trainers went underground and they kind of started their own in home and things like that. And it's like, oh, wow, we have our own business and they're not going back. So gyms right now are having tr- real challenges finding trainers, even admin staff, management. They you know some people have left the industry, tried all other things. We're having a huge challenge trying to get uh, staffing for all of our facilities. Doesn't matter if it's a small boutique or a, you know, a large multi-club chain. So when you say underground, you mean in terms of the current restrictions, but uh, there's nothing restricting people. I mean, it, you know, they. You're, what I'm hearing is that some of your trainers have uh, taken clients from the gym and, uh, you know, gone private with them. Yeah, what they say, you know, if I'm, uh, I own my gym and you're, I'm a trainer and you're my client, so the gym's closed. And I can't train you, but then I go on the side, hey, Liv, you know what? I can keep training if you want me to come to your home or come to my home or yeah. go to this remote location if you're okay with that. So a lot of trainers started to do things like that on their own. And they've kind of over the, the, the period of closure of all the mandated closures, they've actually established their own business. So now they don't go back to the gym and they're taking a client. Some of the clients may go back to the gym. Some clients will just stay with their trainer. But they definitely will save a trainer, but they may go to the gym just for the regular exercise on the main gym floor. Hmm. Well, uh, I guess in the restaurant business, there's no equivalent of that, Larry. No, <laughs> we, do, we do have some chefs, but there haven't been a huge call out for people to come to your house and cook for you. So <laughs> no, that <laughs> hasn't helped us at all. Uh, Larry, uh, you're talking about uh, some of the subsidies and how some of the subsidies actually don't work in your industry. For instance, the wage subsidy, uh, you have to be paying somebody to work to get it. Correct. I mean, that that was one of the things we brought up over, over the whole of the pandemic is we've asked for a seat at the table to try and explain how the restaurant financials work to explain. It's been fantastic when we open to get the subsidies, but when we closed, how do we use the wage subsidy? We don't have any staff. We've laid them all off. The rent subsidy has been helpful for some and not for all, depending on the size of your corporation. And that has also helped extremely, but not to the, 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 the level that we require. At the end of the day, once everything reopens, we've got numerous landlords coming to all of our franchisees, all of our independent operators and saying, hey, you open now. Can you pay me back the rent that you, you haven't given me on the subsidy? And we're saying, well, we're going to sell one hamburger on Monday. How do we propose to pay you back $200,000? So I think there's a long road in front of us. You've got massive inflation that's taking place right now. Products not being able to get over the border. Products are going up in price. You're going to see a dairy price increase of 6%, produce 5% over the next few months. That's going to be reflective in, in the prices we're going to have to charge. Labor's just gone up to $15 an hour. Difficult getting labor, as you heard from everybody else. So there are numerous challenges that are on the table. We're not out of the woods by a long way at this point in time. Well, I've got to tell you, I uh, had some recent takeout, and the price of the takeout is, is up even from the last time we'd have takeout. It's expensive. Yeah, I mean, look, people say it's expensive, but let's be fair. When you go to the grocery store today, I think you'll realize that things have gone up at the grocery store. Absolutely. So we we are not immune from that. So if, if prices are going up at grocery stores, you know that restaurants have no choice with, with the labor changes and charges and the, and the increases in product. We, too, are going to have to go up. And, and we're in big competition now with people who've become very, very used to sitting on their couch and ordering in, which is which is not good for the street business. Downtown uh, on, uh, Toronto is dead still and nothing going on with offices coming back. So there's a long road to go back and people are going to suffer a long way still to get back on their feet financially. And, and we're going to need a lot more support from the government to get this economy back on side. They've spent 90% of the pandemic obviously taking care of sick patients and the health side of things. But the health of the economy is critical to the taxes that are going to be charged in the future and to the way the government raises money to pay for the health care. So don't forget about all the small businesses that are out there that produce this for the government. Uh, okay, I'm going to take a couple of calls. We've got David in Brampton. Hello, David. Uh, hello, Libby. How are you doing? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Okay, I tell you, like I'm a senior, I'm 76 years old, and, uh, you know, I mean, part of my physical and mental health is going to a gym every day. I've been doing that ever since I retired, right? Yep. 
Now, I have for people you. there that I've known for years, and this is part of my social life. You know, uh, we all uh, are doing healthy activities and, and stuff like that. And this is something that should be cur- encouraged, especially for seniors. Because, you know, I have, <clears throat> I'm 76. I haven't been in the hospital. Healthy seniors well, are usually people that do go and get hospitalized in the ICU. Well, if you keep them healthy, you know, if they're mental health and physical health, and part of that is regular exercise. So you're going back to the gym? Yeah, I'm going back to the gym. I, I, I It's at Loafers Lake uh, in, in Brampton. I, uh, Patrick Brown has been a big supporter of uh, physical health in uh, in Brampton, and I really appreciate it. I, I mean, he's... He's a guy that's really been uh, on the team, you know. I, I, yeah, he's very uh, sporty. Uh, I don't know. I, I know he plays hockey, and uh, uh, he plays tennis. He used to be a member of my club and played at a high level. David, uh, good for you. You're setting a great example for other Zoomers. Appreciate your call and have fun at the gym. Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay. Okay. Bye. Okay. Uh, let us go to Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, Libby. Thanks. I know you're always, you, the time is important. Mr. Ford is on the right track. 21 days between steps. Hospital cases are just easing up. Let the hospital staff has a t- have a tiny break. In the meanwhile, school opened just two days ago. Let's just wait and see how that works out, and then restaurant, etc. This way, there will not be a tsunami at the hospital. Okay, and in the meanwhile, the hospitals can start on other emergency operations, cancer treatment, etc. Well, and they're not they, they're not clear enough for that yet. Let's hope that's coming soon, Sita. Thanks for your call. Um, we're starting to run out of time for this segment. Uh, you know, one of the things I didn't bring up, I know that Larry has mentioned it before, is the issue of loan forgiveness, that all those loans that the government made available to small businesses, well, they're going to have to be paid back. Larry? Yeah, I, I mean, this is one of the things that we're talking about. And, and as I said to you, the, the reality of opening doesn't mean you have money. It means you're just open. We still have to, you know, follow all the protocols. We've got to bring pro- a product back in. We've got to hire staff and probably pay some more money. So between the debt that's being carried and, and just remember that all the independent operators out there, even though you've had the rent support and and the payroll support, most of the small independent operators have not had an opportunity over the last two years to actually earn an income. So they've been living on lines of credit and and all their savings. So you have to take that into account as we have to start paying things back. We need a lot of time. And I'm talking not 12 months. You're looking at 36 months to 48 months to get everybody back on financial footing that sound. Wow. Yeah. Long road ahead. Perry, what would you like to leave us with? I like to add to just what uh, you know what Delar just said there. And same with the fitness industry. Each in the operator is in debt, incurred debt of up to around hundred eighty, hundred ninety thousand dollars that they have to pay back, even with the subsidies. And the subsidy we've been locked down four times, but they don't just they don't match the subsidies with that. Like this ten thousand dollars appreciative, but it really is just really a little cookie that doesn't help a lot. And with the federal government, they haven't added with it, with these shutdowns and help. Like they put restrictions in for the rent relief where you really, if you're, I think the benchmark's on 38% of your revenue loss. If it's more than that or less than that, then you don't, you know, get any subsidies. And they haven't extended it with all the shutdowns that went on. So that's one issue. The only thing I want to leave you with is David made a great point. Uh, that was an amazing call. That's part of what we want to, we talk about is closing us down. We're part of the solution. If, if you know, we have the rules to operate safely and can control it better than most environments with, with software that we have to book appointments and keep things clean and safe. And, but, you know, people have looked at the benefits of physical and mental health to get us through this pandemic as well. And building your immunity so you, you, if you do get COVID, you're not severely ill as well, too, to improve Well, I don't, I don't know that, that the fitness is, is what determines that, to be fair, but uh, you're absolutely right. It is really important, and it's important without COVID to stay active and fit. And uh, on that note, I'll wrap things up. Uh, thank you so much, Perry Tuccheroni and Larry Isaacs. Bye. Thank you. Bye. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, Larry alluded to it, it. That is the highest inflation in 30 years. I want to know how you're managing and we'll get a look at the impact on the economy and what we can expect going forward when we come back.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Inflation has hit a 30-year high. That news is no surprise to anyone who shops for anything. The annual rate is a whopping 4.8%. The most. But food, which is the most basic of basics, has gone up more than that and is projected to increase again in the coming year. This year's increase was 5.7% overall for food, but it depends on what you're buying. Frozen beef, bacon, apples, and oranges have all increased more than that, and so have shelter costs. And even though gas has come off recent highs, prices are more than 30% higher than they were in December 2020, just over a year ago. And let's not forget anything with a microchip. Maybe you need a new washing machine or a new or used car and the list goes on. I want to hear from you about how you have been affected. And if you have a strategy for more of the same coming up, 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now for more perspective, let's go to Dr. Talon Ishjan, professor in the Department of Economics at Dalhousie University, and David Kravitz, vice president of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer of CARP. Welcome and thank you. Hi, Libby. Hi, everyone. Uh, Dr. Ishjan, I think the thing that people really want to know is, do you see this as temporary because of disrupted supply chains, bad weather, or is this something we've got to kind of get used to? Well, I hope we don't need to get used to this. I hope that it's it's temporary. It's, it's, it's definitely hurting... Uh, families. And I think uh, we had a perfect storm uh, right before the pandemic hit the world. There was already a bit of a trade war between the United States and China. We knew that it was going to have an impact on supply chains. uh, But right on the heels of that, we had the pandemic that uh, started percolating through the supply chains. We all know that. And over the last year, energy prices uh, increased quite dramatically. So uh, we are in a perfect storm. I think it's a fairly global phenomenon, uh, but I don't expect this to last uh, for much longer than what we have seen, the pandemic side of the things and the supply chain things. And it will take time for sub- supply chains to adjust to this thing, but I don't, I'm not uh, certain that it's going to last forever. Well, that, that's, that's a bit of good news. David, what have you been hearing from CARP members? That's a good, that, that, I hope not forever. Well, our, our members, CARP members, and indeed the members of the Zoomer demographic, because, precisely because of age and the high percentage who are on fixed incomes, are exceptionally worried about this. It's the number one preoccupation. Over 80% of uh, our members say they are highly worried about inflation. I don't think they're uh, terribly optimistic about um, it being uh, perhaps as short-term as some are predicting, uh, because in addition to the supply chain issues, um, we have record federal debt. We've lived through this movie before and <clears throat> seen the effects of inflation uh, prolonged over a period of time, and we know that the more uh, the government increases the money supply with uh, huge deficits, the harder it is to get this under control. So I would say it's a time of very high anxiety in our corner of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Professor East John, you know, uh, it, it's been an uneven pandemic. Some people have done very well, thank you very much, and have managed to sock away a lot of money. Stock market's been great. Uh, so what do you see in terms of that, in terms of the really uneven impact financially? That's an excellent question. I don't hear that question being posed uh, a lot, uh, in fact, even uh, academics. It's a fantastic question because inflation has always been uh, sort of uh, uh, something that affected people unevenly. Some people benefited from that and uh, some people lost. Uh, If you're uh, in a fixed income security, of course, uh, you're going to suffer from that. And if you're Sometimes in, in other sort of investments, you'll benefit from that. As you mentioned, uh, the stock market versus the uh, fixed income people. 
But we're also seeing through this pandemic record profits by some uh, household name companies. And uh, and we have over the years also seen incredible market consolidation and 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 uh, and, uh, and and pricing power of these of these firms have increased. So whatever costs uh, increases they have seen, they've they've been able to pass it on to on to consumers. And uh, so yes, this has been a boon for some uh, for some companies and uh, and record profits even in some uh, agricultural uh, companies, uh, main distributors. And certainly not a good news, a high level of anxiety among, uh, among people, uh, with fixed income. So I think David's point is, uh, uh, right on the money. It, it, it does create an incredible amount of anxiety. And your question is right on the money as well. It, it has been an uneven process. So we have to address both of these issues. I'm a bit less certain about the impacts of the inc- increase in money supply on this thing because of the fact that, I mean, this is not the first time we are having a big shock. Uh, we had these uh, over the last 30 years, many disturbances in markets. Not let's not forget the 2007-2008 financial crisis. And during that time, uh, money supply did increase, but actually inflation went down. So what we're seeing is uniquely different from what we have seen at that point. Uh, federal deficits, um, I think, they have in fact uh, helped many people, vulnerable groups, to to. Uh, uh, survive this pandemic better than uh, they would have otherwise. Um, so it's a mixed bag. I think uh, your question is the exactly the type of question we should be asking. Who's benefiting from that? Who's losing in that? And how can we help those people who are actually losing and the vulnerable groups, especially? Okay, let's hear from Irene in Toronto. Hello, Irene. Irene, are you there? Hmm. <laughs> we got a very long comment written up here, but she doesn't seem to be there. Are you there, Irene? Nope. Nope. She, um, she changed her mind. Uh, so, uh, again, I mean, uh, David, I know that a lot of older people on fixed incomes, but in terms of investments, I mean, I think that most older people have kind of over the last long while have had to turn away from fixed income investments and, and are also benefiting from the markets. Well, I think that's, that's true. And uh, this, what's, what's unique here is that this is all occurring at a time of tremendous increases in longevity. So the population who is quote unquote older is much larger. We have uh, almost 7 million Canadians, 65 plus. So the notion that there would be large subgroups, you know, some of whom are struggling in poverty, some of whom are doing well, uh, that's kind of not happened before, the, the size of the sheer size of the population. And some have benefited um, from inflation or are able to, but everybody's been forced, by the way, even without inflation to look at their investment strategy because outliving your money, which is a phrase we never heard in the past, is now an issue as well. And do I have enough money accumulated at any rate of return, risky, safe, whatever, have I accumulated enough money to sustain a couple of decades? A 65-year-old today could aspire to 30 more years. Is there enough money to do that? And that's why we're seeing um, the end of retirement, as we know it, with people continuing to work full-time, part-time. So it's a very diverse uh, pattern, and it wouldn't surprise, it's not surprising, we should not be surprised to say, hey, there's a couple million people in this boat, and a couple million people in that boat, and they're both the same age group, uh, much more diverse than ever before. Uh, and, you know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I think that the thing that people will notice the most is the increase in the cost of food. And, you know, I have one little story that I think really illustrates it, even though the product is a bit of a luxury. So I had a certain brand of olive oil that I really like. It disappeared from the shelves, I would say, over a year ago. The owner of the store told me that the distributor had changed and he couldn't get any blah, blah. Then, uh, you know, I was there one day and boom, I saw there was one bottle of it left. And it was 50% more expensive than the last time I bought it. And yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that, that, that the cost of it is being paid by the grocer. I don't think he decided to, to jack up the prices. You know, they have to pass things along. And if you repeat that, you know, I don't know, 
dozens of times for basic, even more basic than that, frankly, products, you know, you've got the what happens at the grocery store. Well, well I, I, that's true. That's that's absolutely right. I think it's a, it has been a, a quite dramatic when people started seeing price increases that they had not seen, and and these are the these are the products that they, they those are necessities. They have they have been using them, they have been purchasing them, and and just like you did, there's a big shock there. Um, now, in that particular instance, it may be a bit idiosyncratic, the distributor and the supply chain and all, all that sort of stuff. But uh, the, the reality is. It is becoming. It, it was a pretty uniform phenomenon for food items, and uh, and also it kind of shows uh, tells us that uh, that we really have to rethink at some level uh, what does it mean to to have a food system within Canada uh, that's affordable and uh, is is somewhat resilient to these sorts of uh, shocks that we may see more frequently in the future. I'm not saying that we'll have a repeat of this thing in the next five years, but who knows? I mean, who can tell the future? We didn't know this was coming, but many many people were telling that we were too reliant on a few distributors and few supply chains with less reliance on a, a local food, uh, food uh, provision. Well, some of us want to eat fresh fruits and vegetables in the winter. Well, <laughs> it's, 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 it's interesting because... Uh, my my case, uh, you gave an example, and uh, let me throw in my uh, case into this. Um, so I am a member of a CSA. So I, I buy my vegetables and fruit uh, from a, a local farm, and uh, they distribute it. We signed up for it last year um, in December, uh, and uh, so we had paid for our basically uh, fresh vegetables and fruits up front a year in advance. So wow. we were to some extent um, sort of. Uh, Shielded from the uh, from the the disturbance in the market, but of course there are other things that uh, that that change over the time. So what I'm trying to get at here is that uh, these sorts of local links and support for local and their their costs are increasing. Don't take me wrong; their the fuel costs are in, increasing. These are organic farms; they don't rely on uh, artificial fertilizers, so they're to some extent cushioned by this. But their own expenses are also increasing. But it's it it, it can help us to see where the changes coming from. Be a little bit less surprised about this missing olive oil on the shelf and know exactly why those prices uh, might be increasing and a bit more certain about the, the cause of that. Yeah, well, no, I agree with you. And that's great to do that. Except again, in the winter, uh, if you're with a local farm, uh, you'll be getting cabbage and potatoes. <laughs> but let's face it, the real, I mean, the, the real urgency here, and I, I think it's I wish I, I wish I was in a program like that. Um, they but, have them here, David. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to find out now. They're quite expensive, though. <laughs> yeah, but well, that's what I'm leading up to. So that the real impact here, and I do think it's a political time bomb that's ticking away because I think that the government of Canada and much more so the government of the United States are very underestimating the degree to which this is going to move the dial um, politically. Uh, the real impact here is the people that don't have the discretion that have to pay more for essentials that can't make these moves of giving up one item or a couple of items or a luxury item or a discretionary item. And they have to choose between, you know, heat or eat. I mean, we haven't even talked about uh, rising energy costs and fuel costs. Uh, Europe is up, what is it, over 100% over last year, and they they brought in their whole um, renewable uh, fuel um, uh, end of carbon-based, you know, fossil fuels just in time for cold weather, and they're short of everything, and uh, people are almost ready to riot in the streets over energy costs. I mean, you've got to pay for your heating. You've got to pay for certain basics, even if they're not maybe the ones that you would want with if you had full discretionary power. And there's a lot of people who are hurting big time, and I don't think it's on the radar uh, as prominently among our political leaders uh, as it uh, should be. And as I think I'm predicting, if I'm going out on a limb, as I think it will be. Uh, if this thing continues, and I think it's going to continue. Well, uh, the other, I, I, the other big thing in our inflation is housing costs. Uh, real estate has just, I mean, it's, 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 
unbelievable the amount real estate has gone up. That's a made in Canada thing. And, uh, yep. you know, my perspective is I think come the next elections, uh, the governments, governments will be focusing on younger demographics who've got to get into houses. Uh, they may, they may, they may do, but if they start focusing but don't have a good answer, and if I can throw my one anecdote into the piece really quickly, uh, our, uh, our middle uh, child, our oldest child, excuse me, our oldest daughter recently moved to the United States because she gave up on any hope of ever being able to buy a home in Toronto for the rest of her life. Wow. Said, I'm out of the market. It's too expensive. And she moved all the way down to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Wow. Well, the the one thing about housing is is I mean I I'm I'm calling in from Halifax. We had uh, people um, uh, from Ontario and 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 in in Halifax uh, uh, with living in tents because uh, the the housing market here is just uh, off the roof. And I've uh, I've been uh, quite uh, amazed by the sort of sheer response of the housing prices to during the pandemic. But at the same time, I mean, we shouldn't underestimate this was also happening in the United States. In the United States, uh, over 2021, uh, housing prices in, in, the, in, the, in the country as a whole went up 20%. I mean, there was, uh, there was again, some regional variation. But, but, mortgage, but mortgage interest is deductible, and yeah. there are many markets where yeah. you can afford to buy a house if you're a younger person. And in Toronto, it's over. It's literally over. Well, and and uh, part of the reason for that increase in Halifax are people from Toronto. From Toronto. Moved. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, uh, blame blame Ontario for a change. We don't uh, have hard uh, numbers on that, but we do have some anecdotal evidence suggesting yes, yes, with uh, uh, yes. remote working um, that has increased the appeal of Atlantic Canada for some people uh, otherwise living in, in Ontario. You're right. Okay, I, I've got to wrap up this conversation. It's very interesting, and I'm sure that we will be talking about this a lot over the coming months. Thank you so much, Dr. Tolan Eastjohn and David Kravitz. Thank, Thank you for you having me. me again. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're Bye-bye. taking another break, and when we come back, we'll get the doctor's perspective on the easing of restrictions. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have heard from businesses hardest hit by the current restrictions and their hopes for the coming opening. And now it's time for the doctor's perspective. And given that we do not have the real COVID numbers, and the good news is that the rate of infection has slowed, not declined, is this the right time to ease up? And uh, I want to hear from the audience as well. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Barry Pakis, the Medical Officer of Health for York Region, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, Infectious Disease Specialist at the University Health Network. Welcome. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, let us begin with Dr. Pecos. So is this the right time to ease up? So uh, right now is not the right time to ease up. Unfortunately, that's not what uh, the premier announced. He, of course, announced that we would be easing up, but not for another uh, two weeks or so or 11 days. So um, it's certainly uh, true that we've seen a decrease in the acceleration of cases right now. And, and there's some good and hopeful signs. Um, about, you know, from wastewater, from cases generally in positivity and our admissions. I think we're just at the beginning of signs of hope. So I think the announcement is, uh, you know, giving people a little bit of, of certainty perhaps about what they can expect and, and certainly businesses. Um, but uh, it's, it is a bit tenuous. So, you know, I, I certainly think that um, things could go the other way uh, potentially. And, and uh, I'm sure that the, the premier and the cabinet and the CMOH office would respond um, you know, and potentially change that day if that happens. I certainly hope it won't happen. And, and this is a reasonable plan for the next couple of months, uh, though somewhat optimistic. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, what's your view? Yeah, I think most of the signs, at least in Toronto area, from our hospital shows like things are improving. It's very slowly and they're right at the beginning of it. Um, and the question is really what's going to happen 11 days from now at the end of January to change all that. And the big one is the schools. So, Kids returning to schools as of yesterday means that we might see another bump. It may not 
elevate to the same peak that we saw earlier in January. But I think that's the big wild card to see what effect schools has. And I think most people would anticipate that it will have an effect in the case numbers rising and transmitting to staff again and to frontline staff of all sorts of workers. And in that case, then, you know, opening up at the end of January may not be the best timing. Hmm. Yeah, I I think, uh, you know, that it was a political imperative uh, more than, uh, you know, a a good read of the medical evidence, uh, Dr. Pegas. You know, it it is, uh, you know, throughout the pandemic, throughout the two years of the pandemic, I think we've seen that, you know, politics, economics, health, you know, when, when there's a pandemic like this that overwhelms everything in every society, that there are political dimensions to everything. And I think we, we do need to live with that. So, you know, I, I think um, we all acknowledge that. Um, I, I really do agree with Dr. Vaseman that, that the school's piece is, is a bit of an unknown. And in addition to just the increase in cases, which I think, you know, may be modest, I think what's important to, to keep in mind is one of the challenges for hospitals and all essential services across the board is, you know, people needing to isolate if somebody is in their household. Um, that is ill. And even though that isolation period is, is very much restricted now, with schools opening and kids potentially becoming ill, even if there isn't this increase in transmission that leads to new admissions, what it very well might do for a short time is, is put additional strain on many services, including healthcare services, because some of those people who work there may need to stay home. There's all kinds of measures that we have to keep those people in the workforce through testing and various other means, but that's another challenge that we're facing with this with this reopening, and, and it's yet to be seen what kind of impact that'll have. Well, we keep hearing about jurisdictions where they, they're making provisions so that uh, even infected healthcare workers can work in certain settings alone. Yes. Uh, so certain hospitals across Ontario have gone ahead with that, and that was outlined based on the documents from the end of December that was released by the Ministry of Health of how to do that safely. But I think most hospitals are trying to do that. In, they're, trying, they're hesitating to do that because there is risk associated with it, and really it's only when it's absolutely necessary. So I think that Dr. Pick nailed it on the head that it's not just a question of hospitalization, it's, just a, it's also a question of personnel. This wave has been marked more so than previous waves by a loss of human personnel, not just in hospitals, but everywhere. So that that's where you're going to run into problems running essential services, not just hospitals, police, fire, everything. Let me ask you a personal question, Dr. Pekas. Are you ready to go to a restaurant to eat indoors or to go to the gym? Uh, you know, I'm, I would certainly be looking forward to both of those things. Um, you know, in, for the situation I am uh, in, um, you know, I, I triple vaccinated as many people are. I think, um, you know, a restaurant is a, is a, you know, all restaurants are not the same, certainly, if you're asking me a personal question. And certainly, you know, going to a very busy restaurant, even if it's at, you know, the, the required capacity, um, you know, it may look different between restaurants. So I'm, I'm you know, happy to, to stay at home here and, and uh, to eat at home. But I think people can and, and should feel safe you know, when the provincial guidance does indicate that that's allowed. And, and really, again, with so many restaurant venues, um, people just do need to be careful and thoughtful. And, and restaurants, of course, need to make all the provisions that they know they need to do. This isn't their first uh, shot at this. Um, and so, you know, I think it can be it can be potentially safe. And I think restaurants is a reasonable place to start. They have suffered a lot during the pandemic. And if done properly, I, I think it can be done in a reasonably safe way. Dr. Vaisman, same personal question to you. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, when you're looking at these decisions, you, I think there's really two distinct questions you ask yourself. Is it safe for me and my family? And is it good for the general population? And I know it's hard to, for people to kind of care about the general situation in Ontario, but that's the second thing that you really need to consider. So although for me personally, I wouldn't have a problem of eating indoors. I'm triply vaxxed. My family's vaccinated. We don't have any compromised people in my family. I, I feel totally comfortable from a safety perspective. The question is, is how am I affecting the overall situation in my region, in my province? And as Dr. Bakus mentioned, it certainly can be done safely. And in the future, it makes a lot of sense that we should be opening up very, very soon once these numbers come down. But I think that's the other question people need to ask is what you're doing, these kinds of things. Are you going to lead to transmission and overwhelming? Are you contributing to that problem of overwhelming the system? Yeah, I mean, one of the other problems just for people in general is that it, it's impossible. Well, I won't say impossible. It's very difficult to get a test. And I'm just talking about uh, a rapid test, uh, even if you want to pay for it, 
you know, it, it, there were a lot of people who got them before there was a run on them, but now it is, you know, it, it's very difficult to do that. And that's, I think, a big constraint. Am I right, Dr. Pecos? Yeah, certainly testing is one of the challenges, not only because, you know, it, it helps us know whether we're infected, whether we need to go out, but it is something we've somewhat become used to over time. And it's still only a couple of weeks since, you know, there has been restricted testing. So, we, you know, it's, it's challenging for everybody to understand how we should behave. Um, you know, I think overall, the, at the population level, we've made the decision, you know, over the past couple of weeks, and it's become really clear as we open school this week, that school is the congregate environment that we really feel as a society needs to get open. And that's why, you know, the, the government has dedicated uh, at least two tests for all staff and students there and made that available. Um, and it is difficult to get those in the general population. So, you know, as we approach um, January 31st, uh, hopefully some of those um, you know, rapid tests are going to be a little bit more available to people. And certainly as uh, the, the testing guidance for PCR testing um, comes into effect, because it's only been a couple of weeks and, and now the, the labs are having more capacity, we saw that we added uh, first responders and family members of unvaccinated seniors to the list of people who can get a PCR. And as that capacity increases again, we'll add some more people to who can get tested. But it isn't going to be the entire population, and people really just need, need to be very vigilant that if they have symptoms, they need to isolate and most certainly not go to a restaurant when that option's available to them. Okay, I'm going to give the numbers out again. I would like to hear from the audience. We had some people who were calling us in the first thing about whether they are ready to go to restaurants and to gyms. Uh, both those things can be very important to your mental health and certainly important for the economy. Uh and just in general, what are you thinking? I mean, we've just heard that we're going to take this step to reopening in 11 days. Uh, the numbers of cases are not going down. Maybe they're plateauing or the rate of increase has slowed. The, uh, what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And one of the things that I find interesting is that I've seen a number of jurisdictions where lockdowns were really strict, like Australia, suddenly say, we're not locking down anymore. And uh, I think that there is a sense among quite a few people that, uh, you know, that maybe those lockdowns didn't really help, certainly when it came to Omicron. Uh, Dr. Pecos, what do you think? Well, you know, it, it's always important, but always difficult and lots of caveats when we compare jurisdictions. Um, there is no question that the Australian approach was, was pretty severe, but it, it, it did result in a, in a pretty good outcome for them. And, you know, similar if you look at Canada compared to the United States. You know, I'm, I'm very pleased overall with how we responded. Of course, it differs by province, but, you know, I, I think we did do the right thing. Um, and our populations, are, our public is very different. You know, if you look at jurisdictions like Israel or UK, where many, many more people did have COVID initially, and, and there's a lot more spread now, particularly in Israel, where I think they are getting close to endemic. And you need to remember that our population in Canada, with many multiples more seniors and many fewer children than a country like Israel, who's demographically different, we, we genuinely have to have a different approach to things. So, you know, I think Omicron has changed our approach overall uh, in all countries. Um, but that just doesn't mean for everyone that opening up right away is the right answer. It really needs to be done in a, a measured way, and, and that's exactly what we're doing. You know, it's interesting you should bring up Israel. I just saw a news report from there which basically said that vaccinating kids helped, but that their protection uh, is very limited uh, in terms of how long it, it lasts, uh, uh, Dr. Vaisman. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, there's no doubt that vaccinating kids is very important. And I think one of the main reasons you should be vaccinating kids is protecting them from any potential long-term consequences. So a paper just came out showing that it protects them from an inflammatory disorder associated with COVID. As for how long it lasts and how good it is at preventing transmission between kids is, is another question. And it's certainly potential to be limited, as we know with adults, that with Omicron, we have less potential to actually prevent transmission with vaccination. But where it counts where vaccines count, it's doing exactly what it needs to do with children, which is to protect them from any severe side effects or hospitalization, which to begin with are uncommon, but does even better at the job than that. So I think it, we, we would anticipate that the length of 
the protection from vaccines shouldn't be any better in a child than it is an adult. And we've seen that. And that's why we've got boosters at the end of 2021. Hmm. And uh, Dr. Pekas, just yesterday, the prime minister was saying, hey, uh, not enough children are vaxxed. Uh, you know, we're in your, at least in York region, we're moving towards 60 percent of our 5 to 11 getting the first dose and, and, over, and hopefully uh, very shortly 10 percent double dose. And I think that's really going to be key, as, as Dr. Vaisman said, that, you know, we, we need to move away from this idea that the vaccine is preventing infection. Uh, it may do that somewhat, but really that's not the goal. The, the goal is really, you know, if we're, if we're talking about schools, is we don't want those children being exposed um, to a risk of severe illness. And the way to do that is to make sure that, that children are vaccinated when they go back to school. To be honest, that's why I'm comfortable sending all of my kids back to school, because they are double vaccinated, and I really encourage everybody, you know, to get that going right away. Um, for the, you know, almost 50% in Ontario or 40% in York region um, that haven't had their kids vaccinated yet. That really is the most important thing that they can do. I'm going to take a call from Marissa in Brampton. Hello, Marissa. Hello, Libby. Um, I would just like to say that I, I feel that uh, we should fully understand where the virus, where Omicron is. I don't know if it has peaked if it has plateaued um or and if it's going down a few weeks ago and i heard uh doctors and um uh people in, who know about epidemiology speak in those terms like that was the path that we were going to follow um so are you ready to go to a restaurant no way i'm i'm um Triple vaxxed. My everyone in my family is uh, vaxxed, um, yeah. and uh, uh, but I don't feel safe. I feel like we're still flying by the seat of our pants. Like I, uh, I'm very cautious person by nature, but um, I I would rather, and I understand the business point of view. Businesses are are hurting. I would much rather donate. Uh, uh, make a donation to a restaurant rather than go in and eat. But I know that like not anybody and not everybody feels that way. So it is a problem. Um, Okay. Well, that's how you feel. And that's what we wanted to hear. Marissa, thanks for your call. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. So then there's the, the other question. Okay. We're moving off the idea that it uh, prevents infection. Uh, But Dr. Vaisman, you know, does this prolong the time when uh, UHN can resume more of the other surgeries that have been postponed, the other kinds of care that have been postponed, some of it cancer treatment? Yes. Um, a lot of that has to do with, so if you look at the total of admissions and hospitalizations that we've had this time, it's not, it's not as bad as it was in the past um, when it comes to severe illness. Certainly the highest number ever achieved in terms of total number of COVID was, was now during this wave. That's absolutely true. And so there is a certain burden associated with COVID in the, in the critical care, um, but it's not as severe that's due to COVID. And so that means that there is a certain amount of ability for hospitals to return to normal sooner. But the main reason that we're not able to do that is also because we don't have the personnel available. So we've had so many staff exposed and trans, or pick up COVID in the community but that restricts a significant amount of our ability to do any additional work outside of providing care that's most essential. So the surgeries that had to be canceled, procedures, tests, all sorts of things that had to be canceled. So as soon as our personnel are able to return, and we anticipate that the admission numbers with COVID are also going to rapidly drop as fast as they rose, at least that's the prediction, then we'd be able to return to those other, uh, other issues, that, of course, that are really important to provide care for patients. So again, it's that personnel availability that's become a critical problem. And and does the reopening uh, help or hinder that or neutral? Well, I mean, on paper, it should potentially make it worse, but that's only true if the community transmission is high at the time. So if the community transmission is low, the vaccination rates are very high, then reopening doesn't necessarily have to make things hard. As we saw in previous waves, just because we reopened didn't lead to an overwhelming amount of cases in the hospital. It all depends on those other factors and what's else going on in, in society. Uh, Dr. Pekas, in York Region, hospitals there, what do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, hospitals are certainly uh, overwhelmed right now for both of those reasons, the number of patients and the staffing issues. Um, and, and it is in this plateau, but it's in a plateau. It's a very, very high place. So, well, we're, it's, you know, it's good that it's not accelerating in a, in a way that would, you know, even be more overwhelming than it is. Um, it is still a challenge. And I think one of the things um, that we need to look to is, is this, you know, is booster doses. So, you know, in, in York region, we're, we're well over 50% of our 50 plus, but we really need to get those booster doses to everybody. And the reason for that is, um, you know, not only are we dealing with this acute care crisis right now, but, you know, we need to build back and we need to get all of those procedures that have been delayed. We, they need to happen for the health and well-being of those individuals who, you know, who need those procedures. And the way to do that is to prevent people from coming into hospital. So even now, People getting booster doses, a large we have lots of appointments available and, and really across the province. We need to get everybody boosted so that over the next three to six months, there are fewer COVID patients in our hospitals and, and more access for people who need it for other reasons. I think, you know, that's a very forward looking and something individuals really can do is even if you don't, you know, feel the need as you did for the first or second dose, really you need to go out there and get the booster dose in order to reserve that uh, that acute care capacity for the next three to six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you, I, I mean, I think most people who've had two doses uh, are are uh, happy to get a booster. Am I wrong? I mean, some are. And, and, and what we've seen is that, that um, you know, only, you know, across the province, uh, there's still a good, more than 50% of people who had two doses but have not had that third. Uh, and some of that was related to access and, and, you know, they weren't in the 18 to 49 group that only became available in the past uh, month or so. But, you know, people are not um, going in droves to the clinics right now, and they really should be. Uh, Moderna is available across the province now, and that is the preferred uh, vaccine for a booster dose. And, and you know, the, the clinics, many of them are, are not seeing people to capacity right now. So that's, that's really what people can do. And, and I hope that, that you're right. I hope people who've had two doses, you know, recognize uh, how important it is to get that booster and they'll do so in the next couple of weeks because it really will make a difference. Well, and what about that issue for a while? There were a lot of people who wanted to refuse Moderna. They wanted to wait for Pfizer booster. Is that still... Yeah, that, you know, there's no reasoning behind that. Dr. Vaseman hopefully will, will support that as well. I'm sure he will. Um, that, you know, they are equivalent, and, and actually there's some emerging evidence that Moderna may be preferred. There's going to be more Pfizer coming down, um, you know, shortly, uh, hopefully, but, but really I think, you know, every day matters, and, and getting a Moderna dose now is, is equivalent to Pfizer and may even be better, so I'd encourage everybody to do that. Okay, Dr. Vaseman, last 20 seconds to you. Yeah, I think everyone should recognize that things are turning in the positive direction in terms of overall cases and hospitalizations, and it's going to take a while, so... People just need to hold on tight for a few more weeks. Vaccination is still the best way out of this. Hopefully by February, we'll have a little bit more calm, calmness and sanity. Okay, and hopefully better weather too. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry Pecos and Dr. Alon Vaseman. And Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. If you didn't get through, if you have something else that you want to say about all of this, and that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.